What's abortion got to do with it? That's the topic on so many minds since the passage of the new abortion legislation in Texas. And that's why I'm proud to be here today with three leaders in the fight to protect women, children, and put an end at once and for all to domestic abuse around the world. Today's topic, meaningful solutions, the impact of restrictive abortion laws and what we can do about it. I'm thrilled that we're talking about this today. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, founder of the PR firm and publishing company, Incandescent Inc. Here to welcome you to part three of our three-part series hosted by filmmaker Tracy Schott, producer and director of the award-winning documentary, Finding Jen's Voice. Tracy is the founder of VoicesForChange.net, an international organization working to make a difference in women's lives. Also starring in this interview series is Kelsey McKay, an attorney and former dis assistant district attorney in Austin, Texas. She is one of the most recognized national experts on sexual and interpersonal violence, child abuse, and human trafficking. She is also the president and CEO of the nonprofit Respond Against Violence. Her fellow board member, Erica Olson, is also here, a sexual worker who specializes in gender-based violence and trauma-informed care and management, Erica will share her insights into the far-reaching consequences of the government controlling women's bodies. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Tracy. I'm looking forward to this amazing conversation and to these solutions. Thanks, Hope. Uh, yeah, we we started this series a couple of weeks ago, um, shortly after uh, Texas passed SB 8. And um, now we're just learning that they've just uh, passed SB4, which um, just kind of makes things even a little more difficult um, for women who may have an unwanted, unplanned, unsafe child on the way, pregnancy. So um, today we're going to, we, we've spent the last couple of weeks really talking about the law. We really unpacked the last time what reproductive control is like and what that feels like for women individually and the uh, harms it can bring upon women and children individually. Today, we're going to take a bigger picture look at things. We're going to look at kind of the long-term harm to uh, Texas, to um, the society in general. And um, so let me bring everybody back on. Hi, Tracy. Hey, yeah. guys. How are you? Um, so thanks so much for joining. I'm really, you know, I'm kind of terrified about this law, um, especially when you think about um, states kind of in wait for uh, to see how it works out and whether or not they can duplicate it across um, the United States. Um, what are what are some of the long term consequences of a law? What what do we you know what do we picture from Texas in five years or? three or 10, what, what happens to a state, a society that um, uses reproductive control in this way? Or really uses politics as a way to trick society that they're doing one thing when they're really doing another. I mean, one of the, before we get into kind of all of the implications for women um, systemically and individually is the implications that are being talked about 
as the foundation for why this is the type of law they passed. And that is, this isn't just going to be about women. I mean, that is the crux of our conversation, but it's really anyone that they see as immoral or anyone that they want to apply their own judgments to. So gay marriage can be outlawed. You know, there are so many different implications for, um, you know, I'm trying to think of the right word, but like, um, just moderating morality based on what is their belief or what might get them the votes, because don't be tricked by these politicians. They, they don't care about these issues or these babies or these women, they care about staying in control. And that is like-minded with every abuser I've ever met. Erica, what happens to systems across the state if this law holds up? How does this impact us in um, a broader context? I think it's crucial to sort of look at sort of sort of three key pieces, right? When we're talking about SB8 and similar uh, forced birth and forced pregnancy bills, I think first is women, right? We have to look at how it's going to impact women uh, in a broader and in a more systemic way. I think it's going to widen the gender gap uh, in a lot of areas. I think first of all, we're going to see it um, in healthcare. Uh, obviously, I feel like that kind of goes without saying, right? This forcing someone to go through a pregnancy and or force them to give birth or to assault them in order to end a pregnancy in the case for battered women. Um, I think we're going to see poorer health outcomes in general for women. And I think that's going to be true for their physical health as well as for their mental health. I think we are going to see a widening gender gap in higher education. And I think we're going to see a decrease for women in socioeconomic status. Um, I think that in terms of just we're going to see continued and increased harm and suffering. I think we're going to see increased rates of maternal morbidity. I think we're going to see uh, stagnant or increased rates of maternal mortality. And I really think we're going to see maybe even a drop in reporting of assaults um, and abuse to law enforcement agents. And I think we're going to see a decreased use of the criminal justice system because that's going to end, and it's really just going to end up leaving more criminals to harm more victims. You know, rapists, for example, have on average six victims uh, prior to intervention and accountability. But if women cannot control their own bodies, particularly when we're talking about domestic violence, sexual assault, or trafficking, when they literally cannot control their own bodies, then what's the point in reporting? What's the point in using a criminal justice system when they're gonna be tied to those batterers and abusers for years? Well, in, in fact, it's a red flag on them now, right? So, right, we have such low reporting rates already in sexual violence for your average woman. But then you add in things that might challenge your credibility, um, addiction, which is a very normal reaction to trauma, you know, homelessness, um, our trafficking individuals. We have such low reporting rates right now. And now it's like we're trying to break down those barriers to report. But in the end, if now the consequence of reporting is that your entire medical history is open to the world and that could face make you and your family or friends or doctors face a lawsuit, it's just adding one more barrier to report these horrible crimes that already are so underreported. So yeah. even for women who aren't sexually assaulted or even mm -hmm. in, not in an intimate partner violence relationship, help me understand how um, this law leads to things like um, 
uh, decrease in rates in higher education and lower paid jobs. How, what's, what's the connection? Sure. So we know that when a child is born, someone's got to care for that child. Now, whether that's affordable childcare and say some of the Nordic countries, free quality or, uh, you know, low cost childcare, but it, it's going to impact women primarily because women are the ones that give birth. Um, women therefore may or may not be able to finish secondary higher education. If you have, if you don't have the choice to give birth or to not give birth, then that's going to impact your ability to finish school, which then impacts your earnings. It can also impact what kinds of jobs you can take. If you have to care for a child, because in the United States, in Texas and in the United States, we don't have paid family. We don't have guaranteed paid family leave. Uh, we know that women are already discriminated against in the workplace based on reproductive age and parental status. And, you know, a lot of supervisors don't want to take a chance on a woman of reproductive age because she might get pregnant. She might have a baby. And, and so we know that women earn less because they often take breaks, they stay home to raise their children. Um, so I think that that's, I think whether you're talking about education or whether you're talking about um, financial security or what kinds of jobs or what kinds of job opportunities, you know, can you take leadership um, roles? I think those types of, that that's really the connection yeah. between- One thing about COVID, birth. right? All through COVID, I've been reading articles. I mean, as someone who traveled, I have two little kids and I traveled for like the last five years before COVID, all the time for work. And I mean, I would take the late flight home to get here for school. I mean, I want to be with my babies. They miss me. I miss them. But when COVID hit, you know, the number of women who, right, that's our instinct is the number of us who took a step back from our jobs and our professions, because now I had a second and a fourth grader to teach. And it well, was not only that, it was the women who did it. Women who did it. Of course. You can't tell, yeah. right? you know, yeah. men didn't do it. And, and I, and I should mention my mom really helped. Like I want to give her all the kudos in the world. But my point is that's it. like they're already just with COVID. You see the impact it has on women in their careers. Yeah, but right. But isn't Texas pro-life? So Texas is going to step in with all these new babies and provide child care and health care, right? Prenatal care. And I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, we're going to eliminate rape. That's just step one. Well, I, th I mean, I think we should take a look at that, right? Just like we had talked about in the previous podcast, we talked about how the state can act like a batterer. And when you, you want to look at, for example, just as an example, right, you want to look at whether actually anybody, it doesn't have to be a batterer, it doesn't even have to be about abuse. But when someone says something, that this could be work, this could be contracts, do their actions match their words. And Tracy, I think you bring up a really great point because we really have to look at Texas's record on whether or not they are pro-life, not pro-forced birth, but pro-life. And the record speaks for itself. Texas is ranked dead last, 50th in the United States, in health insurance coverage for women of reproductive age. They're ranked 49th in prenatal care. Texas is ranked as having the eighth highest maternal mortality rate in the entire country. There have been multiple polls and studies that ranked Texas as one of the worst places to be a woman in the United States based on the metrics of health, safety, and poverty. You know, in terms of kids, right? It, let, let's, say, let's say we don't care about the women. Let's say if we're just pro-life about the children, right. 
take a look at their record again, right? Um, I mean, Texas ranks 45th out of all states on the key metrics of child well-being. That includes health, education, and poverty. Um, and Kelsey might be able to give a little more info on this. I'm not sure, but there's a class action lawsuit that was filed about 10 years ago. And I think some parts are still ongoing, but it was filed against the state of Texas because of horrific abuse, neglect, and trauma and huge systemic failures within the foster system. So when we talk about women can just quote unquote, give up their babies, Texas continues to fight measures that would, you know, protect and care for the very women and children that they say that they value. And, you know, what can be so overwhelming is, I mean, I'm not in long, long with Erica is that, you know, we need the world to understand these issues. We need our communities to understand them because those of us who are boots on the ground every day, down dirty, in the mud, up till 2 a.m. on Zooms with moms. I, mean, I got three calls yesterday from victims who got connected to me through a, a friend, a family friend. And I mean, it's kind of shifted to a model where I've had to tell them, like, you need to know what to be prepared for, <laughs> how the detective might talk to you, how you're going to get minimized, how this is going to happen. And it, it, it's a society of um, gender bias. And it's, you know, my, my entire life is training police officers, mostly in rural Texas, about gender bias. And that's not an easy feat, but it is a conversation that if you have it correctly and you start having the conversation and you disarm them because it's not about not hating men. My, I have half my best friends are men and they have the same conversation with me, but it is about understanding. This isn't about gender in the sense that like men versus women, this is about equality. This is about you're a good guy and you know, you love me. My husband loves me. He loves my daughter. So you get that. But on a systemic level, how broken the system is in how it responds to gender-based crimes, how it judges women, how we don't want to talk about sex, much less abortion than these things. You know, that's the conversation that we need to be having, because right now it's limited to do you want to kill a baby or not? And we're being tricked by politicians who are, I'm sorry, but abusers in the sense in, in the analogy that abusers, I all the time, when a woman would call the police on her abuser and he'd get arrested, how do you think that first phone call would go from jail? Right. Oh, baby, I love you so much. And all these, I mean, and a lot of people have heard it referred to as the honeymoon phase, like, but it's not a honeymoon. It's a, it's, it's called, I didn't come up with the term, Erica, you might know who I can give this credit, <laughs> but it's manipulative kindness. Like I'm no dummy. I want out of jail. I don't want to be held accountable because I'm an abuser. And so I'm going to use these nice things to trick you. It's and a tactic. Yeah, it's a tactic, it's a tactic. but it's, it's ultimate end is to manipulate and coerce. Because it gives, right. it gives hope, right. right? So uh, I also, you know, I also know that prior to him going to jail, he's been grooming her. Yeah. Right? So the grooming oh, yeah. has been going on before the abuse started. Um, and that's what allows us to blame her for it. Like, well, why did she keep going back? Why did she... Why didn't she right. say no? Why, you know, it's it's the victim blaming that is so ingrained in our criminal legal system, our family court system. Frankly, I think it's ingrained in our entire system, right, Kelsey? Like yes. what you're talking about yeah. is really baked in systemic sexism, right? And we're not saying oh, yes. that individuals have an actual intent. Certainly some do in the cases that you see and I do. But what we're really talking about, Tracy, you know, when you asked about what sort of the big picture impact 
we're talking about you know, systemic sexism that just has this de facto impact that's disproportionate on women, but it also impacts children. So getting back to, you know, just for a moment, who else does it impact? If there are those folks that are listening out there that are like, well, this law isn't meant to be about the health of the woman. This law is meant to be about the well-being of the child. Let's take a look at what a law like SB8 or now SB4, you know, what, what does that do? So when you force births, when you force unintended, unwanted pregnancies to happen, we know what happens. You can go, you, the, you know, the social science is clear on this and we don't have enough time for me to articulate every study. But what we know is that we see when there are forced births in a state or, or, or a nation, you see an increase in neglect, an increase in abuse. Actually, if you go earlier, I believe you, Tracy, identified you have short-term health, right? You have preterm issues, growth, development. But then for the children, you have increased neglect. We're going to see increased abuse. We're also going to see an increase in ACEs, which is adverse childhood experiences, because people who are forced to give birth and then have their own resulting problems from that may, as Kelsey said, turn to substance abuse, or they may have mental health issues that that prevent them from being the kind of parent that they want to be. So we know what ACEs lead to. And they right? may be in an abusive relationship that forced that pregnancy to begin with. And then we but know either, that abusers in domestic violence abuse children. That's that's exactly right. And that's where it increases the abuse yeah. for that group. But it increases Absolutely. it for children across the board because it also increases and perpetuates intergenerational abuse, meaning um, or poverty or socioeconomic, you know, uh, poor socioeconomic outcomes. We know that each of these things impacts children when they don't have supportive, healthy parents. And then I think the last impact that we're really going to see, not only across Texas, but in all the other states that are going to have a law like this, is the real brain drain as well as care shortages. Right. I think we're going to see a brain drain in terms of institutional knowledge in our medical schools about reproductive health care. I think we're going to see doctors and nurses and med and nursing students leave. I think they're not going to come to your prestigious medical school or your universities for pre-med. So states are going to lose out on that. And I think we're going to have a shortage of reproductive health care or even OBGYN in general, healthcare mm -hmm. practitioners. And we know what that looks like in Texas. Imagine what insurance is going to do right now. Like we imagine don't... what medical malpractice liability insurance for doctors is about to do. If you and we're going to lose them. Exactly. And so we're going to lose them just like we had to ship in 2,500 healthcare practitioners during COVID. We know what happens when there's a shortage of care. People get sicker and they die. And I think last, we're, we've got a loss of talent and economic investment, right? I mean, Salesforce in Texas is already paying its staff if they want to leave. I think other companies are very quietly considering their options about whether or not they're going to come to Texas. And so I think states are going to lose talent. I think they're going to lose economic um, investment and opportunities. And you know what? Women aren't going to want to get pregnant if they can't make decisions about their pregnancy. So I predict- or men have sex with you. Like, I think that's our hook. I hate to make it that minimal, but like if in the end you just don't get to have sex, it comes back on you. It's just like men, you see all the memes, like, well, there's another man on that other end, right? But all the focus is, is on, like it's on the woman. 
And that's what I see throughout the criminal justice system with any gendered based crime is that the blame comes back to the woman. Why were you where? I mean, literally in today's day and age in Austin, Texas, I still hear police officers say, well, why did you do that? Why were you drinking? I'm like, I mean, when, you know, why were you wearing that? Why did you do this? And it's the victim blaming is, and these are supposed to be our most educated detectives in sex crimes, right? And so imagine how her mom might respond to her, much less her husband. And a lot of this comes back to gender bias, which is a difficult concept to understand. And it took me many years to even recognize because I didn't feel like I felt it. I'm one, I have way too much confidence. I have since I was a child. Two, I have good hair. Three, I don't know. I just talk a lot and don't listen enough. And so in the end, I'm kind of like, good hair. You know, my dad's always been like, you go, girl. I I have an 11-year-old who's just like me. I was like, we don't, like, we can change the world. We're good. But it took a while for me to understand. And this is where, you know, The conversation with Black Lives Matter and systemic racism was really helpful for me because it forced me to understand like, okay, I'm not racist or maybe I am in some capacities and and it's implicit or I don't know about it. But I really, as one of the more liberal folks in some of my family groups, had to break it down to concepts that they could understand and, and, and didn't make them feel defensive. And that's what I do with police officers every day is like, like, trust me, you're the first one I'm going to call and I'm going to cry when you show up and be so grateful. I know you're a good man. I'm not saying you're not a good man. What I am saying is that when you walk into a house and a woman has been raped or beaten by her husband, you aren't who she wants to see in terms of a man. Like she needs support, validation, belief, hugs, all the things. And unfortunately, because in these gendered crimes, sexual assault, domestic violence, all of those, most of the officers responding are men and most of the victims are female. It's not an issue with being a man or a woman, but it is like you are literally the gender of her abuser and women feel fear differently. And so you have to approach it different. Well, and you're talking about breaking it down for police officers in in working with victims. And then you were also talking about breaking it down for people to understand racism. So how yeah. do we break it down for people to understand gender bias? How do we get there? So it it really it's interesting because Eric and I have spent hours and hours and hours unpacking every possible issue that we can. And it always comes back to the same thing. Like, I don't want it to be the I mean. I guess it's helpful, it's this simple, but I don't want it to be. But every issue that comes up, whether it's police response, whether it's conviction rates and rape, whether it's how the system treats Simone Biles, whether it's, you know, why did this law pass or why are there women incarcerated for killing their, like every issue, I feel like that we address it all comes down to the same thing. And that is the foundational inequality between men and women. And like, I don't want it to be that because I know how it sounds. And I know that people hear, oh, women are being controlled or, and they just stop listening. They think you're crazy feminist. I don't want to hear you. But having come from a very conservative, like I remember standing up at the Thanksgiving dinner table at my aunt's house in New York, yelling about we shouldn't get abortions. Like I, I remember that conversation. So, I mean, it's not like I am 
like not attuned to that perspective. But in every essay opportunity, every research paper I could do in law school was about abortion. And in the end, I could only recognize one thing, and that is starting to understand gender bias and have empathy and find a way to humanize these people I wanted to judge. And I think that, um, so one, we got to put our defenses down. And two, then we can humanize the issue. People get very defensive. My, my husband, my brother, my dad, at the beginning of Black Lives Matters, when I would talk about it in the context of women, it's like, they get very defensive. And I'm like, okay, but I'm not talking about just you, but also when you did that thing, this is how it was handed to me as a woman. Like we have to learn how to hear each other. We can't like us screaming at each other is polarizing. No one wants to be friends. Like you just can't make progress that way. We have to live and work together. And you know, the 9-11 anniversary, I rewatched George W. Bush's speech. Mm-hmm. And I just remember, I mean, that was my first week of law school when when that happened. And I remember just like feeling pulled together. And I think that things are so polarized right now. And on top of, you know, systemic racism, now we're going to make white men hear about gender bias. It, it's, it's hard. These are difficult conversations, but we have to start to have them. And more importantly, we have to start to give other people the words to start them. Because so, you know, we're all lucky in that we work in this field. And like, this is all we talk about all day long. But your average woman, your average, you know, teenager may not know how to start it. And I see a lot of people start that conversation and then get pushed up against the bias of like, well, I like women. I love you. And they don't know where to navigate it from there. Right. Well, so, you know, you're talking about um, giving people tools to have conversations. Um, And and part of that is increasing your knowledge base. Right. And awareness. So when we talk about solutions, I know, I mean, both Voices for Change and Respond Against Violence are all about increasing awareness and targeting um, people with that information. What are some of the other solutions, Erica, that we should be looking at? Well, I think we look at, as Kelsey had said, I think we look at uh, both some short-term as well as some long-term solutions that address some of these underlying gender issues Um, as well as the intersectional issues, right, of racism and poverty in this country. So um, I think one is early and comprehensive education on sexuality and reproductive health. I think we need to, in age-appropriate ways and stages, really discuss reproduction, the body, sexuality, gender. Uh, Two, I think we can have age-appropriate, continual, and comprehensive education on healthy relationships and consent. We need to look at who has autonomy in this country and who doesn't. We do need to look at um, what does consent mean? It doesn't have to be sexual, right? Consent, at the end of it, what it is is it's about empathy. And it's not about, so teaching our kids in school, K through 12, what are healthy relationships? What does autonomy mean? Um, What does consent mean um, in terms of reducing unwanted pregnancies or pregnancies within uh, a context of violence. I think we need infrastructure. Uh, I think we need the infrastructure to support free, uh, at at least low cost, if not free, uh, accessible birth control. I think we need access to affordable health care 
for women and children, you know, beyond chip, beyond, you know, X number of months after birth or until they turn two. Um, I think we need quality, affordable childcare. Um, and then I think, you know, just speaking to what Kelsey was saying, I really think we need to examine the gender norms uh, and the, endem the endemic sexism and misogyny in general that underpin our laws and our practices um, in general, not, you know, on top of domestic violence, sexual assault and trafficking. Um, it's not much, just a few things you have to do. <laughs> okay, what is a few yeah. suggestions, you know? <laughs> just a few. Um, I mean, it, it can become quickly overwhelming for people. And that's why I want to emphasize, like, part of this is just about having a conversation and recognizing maybe what your own implicit biases are. I was, I was so lucky as a prosecutor who knew nothing about domestic violence or gender-based crime at all, and um, that I had an advocate who was so overqualified, Margaret Bassett, for her job, that she'd done research, she was in the field. And so when I had a judgment about a victim, why did she do it? The jury's going to think this. Or She taught me and she educated me. And that made me, once it, I got it, I was like, oh, okay. And I think that the resistance to just be human, um, we have to fight back against that because whatever it is going on in our country right now, it's being driven by dehumanizing other people. Yeah. I don't care if you're Haitian, Afghan, white. I got a little brother in the army. He's in Kuwait right now. I know. Erica, I think you're speaking to, I do. I think you're also speaking to the compartmentalization of women's bodies. You know, you can't yeah. separate, you can't separate a woman from a pregnancy, right? We're mm -hmm. human we're, and we're not parts. We're not body parts. And it's the same in terms of the objectification. So I, I love when you're talking about having these conversations of empathy and humanization and really looking at women as, as whole human beings, um, you know, as opposed to breeders, really. Yeah. Well, and then judging them because, oh, she, like, she should, like, that's what she's defined by, is that she's driven to bring a child onto this earth. Yes, I was driven to do that. I, you know, was confused at pregnancy and and, and loved my babies and loved them dearly. Um, but to be made to feel like I'm less of a woman because I had been put in a situation where that wasn't okay. And right. It's not just women being like, Oh, I'm going to use abortion for birth control. These are some of these women don't get diagnosed with, they don't, they don't know their child has trisomy 13 or 18 until, you know, after the 24 weeks. And so what are you going to do? You're going to make her carry that child or a disabled woman. I had an aunt that was down syndrome. Like, so like, this is this goes well beyond the very kind of privileged perspective of it's rich white women who are getting pregnant and just using it as lazy birth control because that's just not it and that takes away the humanity um and so until you sat side by side or you have held hands alongside the kind of women who are gonna suffer as a consequence to this legislation none of us are gonna suffer at all from it but until you can understand and walk alongside them and breed that humanity into your decisions, I, I just. And with this law, right, Kelsey, we might suffer because if it's aiding and abetting, if it's supporting other women, we may indeed be harmed. And you know better than anybody else, the slippery slope. I think you discussed in an earlier podcast, you know, there's a harm to letting this kind of thing happen. So, you know, talking about solutions, women go to law school. 
vote, you know, get on city councils, get on medical boards, um, you know, different women in, in different professions. Challenge yourself. Take, take lead, well, and take leadership positions so that it's yes. your voice at the table. It's you writing these bills. It's you running for office. Um, those are some more long-term things is, you know, women get, and again, I know we're not a, a homogenous group, but more women in positions of leadership in every place at what is it as Ruth Bader Ginsburg said women belong in all places where decisions are being made we know right that women don't have a majority of leadership roles in any professional field pretty much except for what we call pink pink ghetto pink collars so it's another thing we can do right let's um, let's get women uh, in those positions and let's let them have voices at that yeah. table. I think we can keep things around. Exactly. And representation, women of color. There are so many. I mean, just imagine. I mean, you don't have to imagine. I know you know. But then you add together women of color. Like now you have systemic racism. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what are they supposed to do? And that is a conversation that in this whole Black Lives Matter conversation has not come up is that within systemic um incarceration of black men, the people who have been really like other than the popular politicians right now, the people who have been protecting black men from incarceration at high rates for the last hundred years are no one other than black women. black women. And when do we let them have a voice? Because they're the ones being killed. And I just want to, I'll wrap it up here, but I just want, want to encourage women to think through things, have conversations, challenge yourself, you know, and you're not always going to win the argument, but you will have the you will then go research it because here's the only other solution on the table. You ready? We're going to eradicate rape. And I want to share with you Governor Abbott, who lives in Austin, Texas, where I live. I would like to share with you the rape statistics and the accountability for those offenders in Austin, Texas, where he lives. Right. We know that rape is the most underreported crime. And if you were to include in that, not just me being raped, but trafficked individuals and um, women who are out drinking, like the ones who are going to be immediately blamed, it's much higher, but it is the most underreported crime. So we know that so few of them get reported that when they are, we really should pay attention because it's an opportunity. Rape victims don't generally get raped six times unless they're in trafficking or random person like myself. What we know, though, is that if we catch the offender who raped someone like me, we're going to save many other victims because rape isn't just a confused. It's not just confusion. Right. It, it really much is framed like, oh, men just got confused. She wasn't clear enough. But it's not that. And when you add on top of it, those that get reported is the, the bias and the myth that women make rape up. Um, and the reality is the prevalence of false reporting in sexual assault is no different than every other crime. It's between two and 10%. And, you know, I just had someone go get a sexual assault exam this morning. Like no one wants to go through that. They give, I see these women give their body pictures of their vaginas, everything to their communities because they think that's what you're supposed to do. Unfortunately, in Austin, even though we are a pretty progressive city, we have about a thousand reported accusations of sexual assault annually, a thousand, that's reported, right? And then if you look at the numbers, how many of those cases made it from law enforcement to the prosecutor's office, right? So uh, someone reported it, they primarily get a same exam if it gets this far, 
From those thousand cases, only about 620 get referred to the DA's office. And what that means is the cop, the detective might call the DA and say, we all accept this case. You reported it. Here's the evidence. So about 62% of the ones where a report was open actually get sent to the DA's office. Now, when they get sent to the DA's office, the DA gets to make a decision, are we going to go forward and prosecute this or not? So of those 625 cases, what we saw over the course of four years in Austin was that of those 625, or 79 got accepted for prosecution. So uh, something wrong is going because of those 79, 49% were straight up dismissed. And yet what happens is our politicians, in this case, it was the elected DA. She said and claimed that the DA's office had obtained pleas or findings of guilt in over 111 adult sexual assault cases, when really they had had 12 convictions out of those 1,000 cases. But they counted, you know, pleading it down to a theft, back time misdemeanor. So the problem is when we have politicians who are motivated and have reasons to misrepresent the reality of the state that the criminal justice system is in, right? Then we all can keep our heads buried under sand and say, it won't happen to me. It won't happen to me. But I get calls every single night from someone who it happens to for the first time. So I beg and I ask and I encourage those of you who don't work in this system to get involved and educate yourself because if we don't do something before it happens to your daughter, to your wife, I promise you're going to be calling all of us and wishing you'd done something sooner. We cannot do this alone. This is a societal issue. Final words, Erica? <laughs> um, I, you know, my final words are of hope, right? I've been, I've been <laughs> hope and hope. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, serendipity, hope. No, really, because as heavy as a conversation as this is, and as frightening, I mean, as, as serious as this law is, um, we, we, we've been here, right? This is historical. We've been here, whether we're talking about the KKK Act, whether we're talking about civil rights, you know, we know in gender rights, we know that it's often two steps forward, eight steps back. We just can't get stuck, okay? We just can't get stuck. And so my final words are, there is so much that we can do. I know that we'll be posting some information, but right now you can provide financial or, or volunteer resources at local clinics to Planned Parenthood, to NARAL, to health clinics in your own communities. Um, we can provide emotional, financial, physical support to women who need and who deserve good reproductive health care. You know, midterm, right? What we can do, have your voice heard. So, um, Call. I, I know people can get tired of this, but literally call your representatives, send them texts. There are so many uh, civil rights bots, issue bots out there now that you can just set up and program these things to send petitions to your elected state and national officials. Attend the marches, educate yourself, as Kelsey says, you know, and then big term things, you know, think about running for um a local position, a school board, uh, if you're in a particular profession that can impact gender issues and in particular women's reproductive health care, you know, all those things are possible. And we know that we are not going back, right? We're calling it out. We understand 
that laws like SBS 8 and SB 4 um, are harmful and they're callous. And we have been through that. And generations of women have been through that. And so we are, if we unify, right, if we just, if, if we unify our voices and our actions and whatever resources you have, I have no doubt that we're going to be able to get through this time and, and make a difference. And there's a lot of ways that we can do it. And you're not alone. I mean, you're not alone. Like we, I mean, look at this group of women, you know, I always feel so inspired and supported when I'm like, oh, it's not just me. And because there are really incredible people, men and women in this system who are ready to change it, but we must unite those voices. And so I appreciate y'all giving us this platform, Tracy, having Erica and I on and hope obviously all the incredible work you do and to just let us come on and say the things, but we're so grateful for that. And, you know, in the end, I just want us to treat humanity with humanity. Watch Tracy's film because Tracy's yeah. film does a beautiful job, right? Educate yourself on the issues, bring yourself to, mm -hmm. to compassion and humanity. And Tracy, your, you know, your film, Finding Jen's Voice is a beautiful way that a group of women could sit around their living room and do that. Speaking of films and educating, as well as being compassionate, Kelsey might have a few words to say about some films. Yeah, I think those of you who are in a book club, I'm like in three. Um, and I can, I never, it's like the last day and I'm like downloading it on audible and like, where did all the time go here? I have like a really good middle ground and you can get two months out of this. One is go watch finding Jen's voice. It will help you have the words to understand abuse and those dynamics in a way that like I had been prosecuting these cases for like eight years. I didn't get. So that would be a great opportunity. And then you have a book club about it, right? Y'all watch the movie and then you have a conversation. And then Eric and I are both uh, part of Respond Against Violence. We're having our first fundraiser and it's through Luna Fest, which is Luna Bar supports um, women in film who are, um, they produce the films and the films are all about women. And so the weekend of October 15th and to October 17th, Respond is partnering and we have a screening. So you can go to respondagainstviolence.org and find the Luna Fest page. For $20, you're going to hear seven incredible documentary films about women made by women. They range from issues from motherhood to sports to exploration. Um, they're empowering. And um, it's a really great way to start the conversation in a way that's a little bit more, um, I'm trying to be less controversial. But using film is a really great platform to start those conversations. So those are two things you can go do in the next few days um, and just forget reading a book for the month and have the conversation. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much. Um, you know, uh, I, I became a filmmaker because at some point in my career as a social worker, I realized there was um, a bigger impact to be had uh, when you kind of went into media, television, film, etc. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for this platform. And, um, I think that, um, Hope might have some final words about what, what we can offer. But, um, I think that, you know, I do encourage people to use Voices for Change for, um, resource for webinars and trainings. There's lots of information that, um, uh, we've gathered over the years and I've tried, worked really hard with, 
amazing professionals and survivors to put that information in a way that is um, understandable and digestible for everybody. Um, you don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to have mm -hmm. two master's degrees in the social sciences um, to figure out um, how to help other people. So with that, I'm going to ask Hope to close us out. Thank you, ladies. Just an amazing conversation. So much information, so much passion. You know, Incandescent, my truly amazing women project that I started in 2008, the goal was to raise women's voice and bring us all together. That's why I'm here in New Mexico to create a retreat center for women so we can actually come together. But just coming together in this podcast, and I want to advocate for people to hire Respond and Voices for Change to come and have them do trainings because these are amazing women with amazing backgrounds who know how to change the conversation, change the laws, change the rules. And women just, you know, we need to take our bodies back. We need to stand up. I'm really looking forward to the next generation of women. My daughter, 26 years old, amazing, brilliant, will take no shit. And I'm so proud of her. And, you know, that's what we need to do. So we are going to sh continue to share content and information. These three podcasts are just the beginning. We're going to create a handbook and toolbox for you all to use. So everything that Erica and Kelsey and Tracy were sharing today, we're going to create a document so you can download it and link to it. And that'll be coming in the October issue of Incandescent Women magazine, which will feature this amazing topic and these amazing women. So thank you, thank you, thank you for watching us, episodes one, two, and three. We will share them on social media and on these websites and tune in and send us emails if you have thoughts and you'd like to continue the conversation with us. So all those links will be available online. Thank you, Tracy, Erica, and Kelsey. Be well. <laughs>